Welcome to episode 208 of the Rugby League Republic podcast with your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss Phil Gould going to the Bulldogs, the Challenge Cup final, and Shane Richardson's blueprint for British Rugby League. Join us as we build a rugby league community for all. The Rugby League Republic podcast starts right now. Welcome to episode 208 of the Rugby League Republic podcast. We aim to bring you the everyday fans' perspective on the greatest game of all, Rugby League. This is Rugby League for the people. I'm your co-host, Dr. T. Joining me is Tish. Tish, have you had a big one this week? Uh, Well, look, apart from uh, not leaving my house, I'd say, uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, done done as much as I can by not doing anything at all. So um, yeah, gotta find you. Gotta find new hobbies all the time to keep yourself entertained during lockdown. But good news, uh, we've had nine games, well, eight games in the NRL. Well, nine games last week, include Origin, right? Um, and yeah, a lot to talk about there. And uh, yeah, some some major changes happening. But how about yourself, there, Doctor T? How was how have you been uh, ha- spending your lockdown? Well, look, lockdown, or as we call it here in Australia, the the old locky D. Um, which, which is uh, not to be confused with the 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 old the really old Lockie D, who is Darren Lockyer. Uh, wow. But that's no, that's all right. Um, look, yeah, look, week f- I think week four is it? We're in week four, Sydney lockdown. Mm. Uh, not to be outdone, the Melbournians, uh, the Victorians uh, are jealous. They decided yes. to go, go into lockdown last week as well. Mm. The, uh, the you know no look in all seriousness uh, this Delta variant is is harder to pin down than a Michael Hancock uh, in the State of Origin game. Mm. Um, it, Absolutely, it, it's pretty scary. But uh, look, we're trying to make light it of is. it because uh, we're doing nothing else at home. We're trying to be safe, wash hands, put your mask on when you go outside, all that kind of thing, mm. and and uh, only go out for essential services and things like that. So. You know, and it's unfortunate. There's, there's, you know, few, few deaths here and there, and a few people in the hospital. So we hope everyone gets out safely, and we hope that we can stop the spread of this, uh, this dreadful disease. And yeah, but um, look, fourth week of lockdown, and the rest of us who have to, uh, you know, work from home, and uh, you know, keep things going, keep society moving along. Uh, you know, and watch the NRL, you know. Um, we're trying to keep as normal as possible and and do the things that we would normally do. But, um, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit in a minute about how the NRL is trying to adapt to the situation and to try and keep bringing us good good old rugby league entertainment. Uh, they're bending over backwards to try to accommodate, uh, you know, the fans which is great, um, but mm. yeah, it must be tough on them, the players and the officials and the, the, the staff of all the clubs, etc. It must be pretty yeah. tough to have to... And let's um, not forget the families um, as well yeah. and um, probably all the hotels um, and all the people in Queensland who have to accommodate for, what's it, 480 NRL players, right? Like, uh, you know, 30, what, 30 squads times 16, that's what, 480? Like, because... 
Isn't there? Is there any club that's not in Queensland now? Uh, like I think even Melbourne are in there, right? Uh, possibly. Yeah, I think yeah. possibly. So yeah, it's it's a bit uh, it's a bit crazy at the moment. But yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. But look, there's a lot to get through this episode. So uh, and a lot of it, we'll, we're going to take a bite out of some very very interesting topics. So without any further ado, let's jump into our six tackles. And here we go with tackle number one: the news update. Right, so we're going to kick off with the big news update of the week uh, in the world of rugby league, or certainly in the NRL here, and then we'll uh, we'll kind of uh, yeah we'll, we'll sort of allude to it, but then we'll we'll get into a little bit deeper later. But really, the main bit of news that's come out this week, a bit of a shock to be honest, uh, is uh, Phil Gould joining the Canterbury Bulldogs as their general manager of football. Uh, yeah, Tish, unbelievable. So, yeah, so basically, this look. I know we'll get into a bit further anyway later, but I, you know, this is seen as as a bit of a major coup for Canterbury. Uh, they're on their knees at the moment. They're they're dead last, and they're not looking like they've got much hope uh, of getting off the ground. And Phil Gould, uh, just like he did with the the uh, the Panthers a, a while ago, where he was the general manager of football. Uh, he's coming to a similar role. So I guess they've turned to him and said, you know, help us out. And let's not forget, Phil Good was instrumental uh, in, uh, you know, he, he actually got his first coaching premiership under the Bulldogs in 1988. Is that correct? I think he was yeah. he was their coach then. It was his, I don't know if it was his debut year coaching, but it certainly would have been close to his debut year if it wasn't. Um, so, you know, he's, he's not just a Panther boy. He's also a... Uh, you know, a, a bulldog at heart. So it's not, not surprising to that extent. But, yeah, he definitely played between uh, 83 and 85. He played at the Bulldogs and then he coached them to to the premiership in 1988 against your beloved Tigers, unfortunately, and Ellery Hanley's Tigers, no, no less. So, wow. yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. But, look, um, yeah, he uh, – he look, he had a sim- – did he have a similar role – General manager of football, so it's not just at the Panthers, but at the Warriors, I believe as well. Is yes, that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. It, um, so he only had that job uh, up until a week ago. So he was oh, really actually, okay. yeah, he was actually, um, yeah, doing the role at the Warriors. Now he has obviously everything that's happened with COVID. Like you know, um, you know, he hasn't. Uh, he's been working with the team here in you know Central Coast, which they, which they were based in. But obviously, um, going back and forth to New Zealand has been a bit of a challenge with the borders being closed. So I think I think it just came down to the fact that it just wasn't feasible uh, for Fugle to continue on with the Warriors. So um, while that's been happening, I think the Bulldogs there been doing a lot of plays, moving in back, like you know, moving and shaking here in the background, and and that now they've stepped up Phil Gould and. Uh, yeah, interesting, interesting times for the team that is running last in the competition. Um, could this be a, a major change? I'm sure we'll uh, deep dive into this a bit later on. Yeah, you're right. And look, you know, there's no no truth to the rumour that the Bulldogs are in the, uh, the market for Lionel Messi. Uh, it's a different <laughs> sport, everyone. It's a different sport. And we, we do not have the money to bankrupt mm. our whole competition to pay for him. But anyway, uh, yeah, look, we'll dive into the feel-good thing in a minute. So uh, the next uh, big item is obviously, well, look, this started happening last week anyway, but 
Um, this is about, uh, well, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. This is about what the NRL has been doing to accommodate uh, the the, uh, the various lockdowns in three states in Australia, three or four actually now. So, um, so Tish, what's been happening? What's the NRL done to accommodate this? Oh, well, look, um, so uh, obviously uh, in Sydney, we're in a, a lockdown. It's a major lockdown. I mean, we have um, even construction sites closed. Um, so before all of this happened, obviously, you know, uh, state of origin, before, prior to State of Origin 3, uh, the NRL had to do something. So they made the, the decision to shift 12 uh, NRL clubs to uh, southeast Queensland. Um, so we've got a hub that's at the Gold Coast, um, which I believe is Parramatta, the Titans, of course, but uh, I think uh, I know Parramatta there. And I know that, that they've got a hub in uh, Brisbane and then they've got a hub at the Sunshine Coast. Um, so, And then obviously they've got the Cowboys that are obviously in, in Queensland already. Um, so that also includes, yeah, so those 12 clubs that moved up were the 10 uh, Sydney-based clubs or New, uh, New South Wales-based clubs plus the Warriors in Canberra who were both um, coming out of there. And uh, Melbourne Storm, I'm not too sure where they are at the moment, but chances are because of them, yeah, they're probably going to have travel restrictions themselves. So, And I heard Will Chambers actually had to drive up from Melbourne to join the team. So they must obviously also be in Queensland now as well. So, yeah, that means pretty much the entire NRL, all 16 clubs uh, in Queensland at the moment. Uh, while the borders are shut, so this is going to be a big, um, big, you know, and, and, and I think they're going to be here for at least a month. Now, there's, it's very likely that the uh, that this um, that this uh, sort of lockdown that's happening in New South Wales will continue. So, you know, we we really don't have that long till the finals to go anyway. There's only about, um, you know, there's uh, there's going to be I think there's what six or seven rounds left, and then we're into the final series. So potentially the rest of the season can all be in Queensland, which uh, might pose some other questions down the track because the NRL have signed a 20-year agreement to keep the NRL Grand Final at Sydney. But what if what if they can't make it back in time? You know that's a, yeah. that's a possibility, right? So um, what are your thoughts? Oh look, I think uh, look. I'm pretty sure they'll find a way to rejig the contracts and and compensate where appropriate. But to be honest, uh, I think uh, it's looking more and more likely that, you know, we might have to, well, you know, Queensland has very low numbers of COVID cases and and government is willing to sort of uh, keep things relatively open if they're they're down to zero. Whereas I think in Sydney, it's kind of gone a bit uh, haywire in terms of numbers and Melbourne is getting slightly worse as well. So in all likelihood, uh, if there's only eight games left or however many games left, um, no, there's only like six or seven games left, then really, uh, you know, it's very unlikely. uh, And before the finals, it's very unlikely that we're going to see a return to normality here. And it sort of makes sense to play it where, (laughs) play the games where, you know, look, Queensland and Brisbane in particular are like a second homeland, mm. second heart, heartland. Sorry, uh, in in Australia, if you if you if you shut off Sydney for a bit, uh, you'll have plenty of interest in rugby league up there up north. Um, you know, and let's not forget the we've just played an entire state of origin series in Queensland because we've yeah. had to adjust. So 
it's looking very, very likely that that we're going to have to make those tough decisions uh, towards semi-finals time. And I'm, I'm guessing what will happen is, you know, look, I'm guessing the NRL would want to lock lock a venue in uh, for the grand final. Obviously, the centerpiece of the premiership. Uh, Grand final day, it will have to be locked in. I think no less. Or I'm guessing no less than two weeks beforehand. Um, you know, logistically, if all of a sudden Sydney opens up and you've got uh, the 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 main ANZ Stadium, the Olympic Stadium, opened up, ready to go, with people able to go. Uh, you know, and f- let's just say full house potentially. Um, you know, you can easily sell out tickets with two weeks to go because people will be itching to get out there and watch and watch a, a live game and if it's a grand final they're, they're I'm sure they'll be willing to do that um, but you wouldn't want to keep it keep that decision with one week to go because that means too many people have to make too many arrangement changes and things like that so look yeah Queensland might be we might end up having uh, a magic season in, in yeah. Queensland as That's opposed right. to a magic round so it's funny. Look and look. The reason I mentioned earlier, this is what the NRL is doing to adapt and and good on them because I think um, it's look. It's tough for the players and the families, of course, but um, they're doing their best to kind of adapt to the situation. At the end of the day, um, you know, the winner will hopefully be the best team. It, you know, in years gone by, we would have said, oh, you know, we would have whinged about home ground advantage being lost and all this stuff. But look, nowadays, does anyone really think much about home ground advantage? At the end of the day, the best team usually wins a premiership, and that's really what we're aiming for. Whether it gets held in Suncorp Stadium or at Sydney's ANZ Stadium, doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, we're going to get the best two teams there on the day and hopefully the best team to lift up that trophy, and that's all that matters. And so people, look, the other thing don't forget is uh, rugby league is very much a TV game. And so do we lose out much by having not many crowds at, at games? Maybe, but it's not really a terrible spectacle, even without much of a crowd, because I guess we're used to it in rugby league where you often watch games with, you know, small crowds. That's the football stadium, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, does it? Well, yeah, and even at uh, – well, I'm talking even like the home venues of the smaller clubs, you know, you often do get small crowds. But at the end of the day, the best teams will play in a big stadium, hopefully full of a full crowd as opposed to a COVID-reduced crowd. And we'll see how it goes. But, yeah, that's my view. I think, look, whether it ends up being a magic season for Queensland uh, venues, so be it. Um, it'll be... There won't, there, will, there won't be a need to put an asterisk in the history of rugby league here because uh, at the end of the day, games were played. Um, you know, hopefully games will be played in front of a, a nice, healthy crowd. It just means that the venue has slightly changed. But it's not like as if the venue was held in a, a park somewhere where no one was around for miles and miles. It's still in, a, in one of the most popular cities in Australia. So no biggie. Uh, you know, at the end yeah. of the day, we've, we've got to not be precious about about the the venue like the Melbournians are about the MCG. I've always said this. I think the ultimately rugby league would do well to actually parade its centrepiece, um, you know, event around to different venues. Um, yeah, so that's my view. What about you, Tish? Yeah, look, I, I think it's good. And look, um, you got to remember, like, I, I think uh, I think Queensland rugby league is is very strong. Like, I think the 
obviously the passion for the game in, in Queensland. Um, I mean, it's well known, right? So um, I think it's a great opportunity for, um, you know, TNRL to really expand into Queensland a little bit, like, you know, have a bit of a Queensland focus. I, I've got to say, yeah, so we so they are using Lane Park, uh, you know, Sun, Sun, Sunshine Coast Stadium, um, and like obviously, Rabina, uh, you know, uh, the the stadium for the Titans and Rabina. You know, I, I'm just thinking whether they should also try out like the Redcliffe um, Dolphin Stadium, Morton Daly, and maybe even move out to other parts of Queensland as well, just a little bit as well. Like, um, you know, there's probably some other places that, you know, the NRL, I know they are talking about expanding into Queensland. So it might be a good opportunity to sort of um, do a bit of a test case to see. Um, the viability of another team and, and, and you know, uh, particularly moving outside of where we traditionally hold the games. Um, like, to be honest, I mean, the Tigers and the Broncos played in front of, what, 30-odd thousand for a team running 14th and 15th before they ran into the game. So, yeah. um, you know, so it does show that there's an appetite there and and this might be a good way to, to test drive the actual, uh, uh, test drive the actual um, you know, passion for the game up in Queensland. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, we're only two items in, but we are up to tackle number two, our NRL round 18 wrap. Here we go. All right. So round 18 brought, so the post State of Origin 3 round, let's not forget. So um, not too many changes to lineups, but yeah, all of the games played in Queensland. So um, <laughs> let's see how we go. The first full round where everything was played in Queensland. The Eels uh, defeated the Titans 26-8. to The Sea Eagles 32-18 over the Dragons. The Roosters 34-18 over the Cowboys. Same score. Canberra Raiders 34-18 over the Sharks. The Storm flogging the Knights 48-4. to Panthers 30 to 16 over the Warriors. The Tigers 42 to 24 against the Broncos, a high-scoring affair there. And the mm. Rabbitohs 32 to 24 over a surprising, a surprising Bulldogs. Um, Tish, what was your highlight of the round? Well, obviously, it's always great to see the Tigers win, particularly uh, when they were down at halftime, and the game was pretty close for most of it. Um, but I think the highlight uh, is kind of the bizarre situation that happened in the Bulldogs South Sydney game. I don't know if you saw it, uh, Dr. T. But look, this game was actually in the balance with about, I think, 20, 25 minutes to go. Um, but just, uh, you know, I think halftime it might have been 18 all. Um, and as I was walking off the field, uh, there was a bit of a, a sort of, you know, it looked like Lachlan Lewis and uh, Cody Walker were having a, a conversation and then suddenly Lachlan Lewis just decides to take him down like with a tackle or it doesn't even look like a tackle. It just looks like a hug and Cody Walker falling over. And then all the players are stacking on top of each other, trying to pull them apart. And then uh, I think he's been fined with $1,600, but it's the most uh, – he had a big smile on his face the whole time. And, uh, yeah, it was sin bin for 10 minutes um, from what looked like a hug gone wrong. So, um I don't know. Did you did you catch that, Doctor T? At all? It was kind of the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. That's I, probably I the saw, hi- yeah, I saw the highlights. It, it was bizarre. I can't even explain it. It was, it was as it was akin to what I saw with, uh, you know, I think I saw it a couple of times in the. Um, well, we saw it in the in the origin, didn't we? We saw it with a bit Latrell Mitchell. Was it a bit like Latrell Mitchell and the Dane Gagai? Like you didn't know yeah. if they were fighting or not. 
But I think there was something serious that went on in this one, though, wasn't it? Wasn't there some allegations of some serious kind of comments that were made by, was it Lachlan, what was his name, Lachlan? Well, co- uh, apparently Cody Walker told Lachlan the worst. This is a report that, um, mate, you should go back to reserve grade. Right. right. And then Lachlan Lewis took offense to, you know, that 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 very smart and very intelligent, very uh high class uh you know, insult. <laughs> right. And that's why he took him down apparently. Apparently that 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 was the instigator. But um yeah, it's quite bizarre. And you've got to say a lot, this uh, you know, Lachlan Lewis he is a young player. There is a there is some there is some bizarre behaviour with some of the younger players. I must say in the NRL, um, we had it uh, last week where you saw. Uh, I don't know if you saw this as well. Sam Walker, you know, to clinch the game, he actually, um, you know, there was a minute to go, and he ran to his dead ball line, like ninety meters, uh, to oh, finish yeah. off the game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, maybe, uh, maybe like this younger generation of NRL players, uh, maybe they might think differently to the older generation, and maybe. Maybe it was a bit of a generational gap issue. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, look, I don't know. I mean, that that situation from Sam Walker last week, I think I saw even, you know, we're talking about Phil Gould earlier. Phil Gould even mentioned, look, Jared Hain did that in a a state of origin match to close out the match to ensure that they didn't give away the ball. And I think, you know, that's kind of okay if it's a last-minute thing. But, yeah, look, the the, uh, Cody Walker situation, look, if that's all he said... Um, I'm not sure if it warranted that, but uh, look, I'm sure something will come out in in the final wash up eventually because uh, you know we did we did like I just remember when uh, in the soccer when Zidane headbutted the Italian mm. player uh, just before penalties, you know people thought what was going on. And then we found out later there were some pretty nasty words exchanged, <laughs> so yeah. you kind of understood why he, he wanted to why he got angry. But look, at the end of the day, these guys are professionals, or they're meant to be professionals. And look, get over it, guys. I mean, seriously, like if if someone tries to get under your skin and you react, guess what? They won. They got under yeah. your skin. Mm. You know, and so really, they really potentially need to be trained. I think to be a bit more mentally. Uh, mm. mentally stronger if that's what you were getting at and I and yeah. I would agree with that I think there's there's that mental you know like we lost Tommy Radonikas this year obviously but you know I just I think of someone like him as a classic example of you know mental toughness and he's not gonna gonna cop any crap from anyone and you know that kind of thing and you kind of need players like that to remind uh, the youngsters like to just toughen up and get on with it you're there to win the game and yeah. and and to do it in a way that you know um, well, certainly in the past, it would have been about punishing your opponent. Maybe now they don't want to do that because they they hang out with them, <laughs> with your opponents afterwards in at the pub or whatever. So it's it's probably slightly different to what it used to be. Uh, but you know, you'd think that they'd be more professional nowadays. I mean, they're certainly paid like much more higher, highly paid professionals. So they they need to kind of act that way. But um, yeah, look that that was uh look that that was a bit of a highlight as well. Um. The Sharks, uh, sorry, the Raiders played well against the Sharks as well. Let's not forget yeah. that. And what other ones of note? Um, look, there was nothing really that stood out. I think the the thing that scares me as well is that the Storm continue to just go from strength to strength, and uh, they mm. they kind of sitting up there very very nicely, flogging teams left, right, and center. So 
it remains to be seen if they've peaked too early. This is the other thing that that often happens is that when teams go in with such momentum, um, mm. eventually they're going to be brought down, and and I wonder who is the team to bring them down. So, um, yeah. Look, uh, any last thoughts before we move on to tackle three? Oh, well, I'm sure um, as as the weeks go on, um, yeah. Let's keep an eye on what the trends are happening because there are yeah. It's get, uh, I think it's going to be a very contested rate for the race for the final two spots and and particularly those top four spots as well. I think they're going to be uh, quite heavily contested as we go into the end of the season. Absolutely. All right, let's turn to tackle number three, and this time it's our spotlight on can Phil Gould turn around the Bulldogs? Here we go. As we mentioned earlier, Phil Gould has joined the Canterbury Bulldogs as an NRL club's general manager of football. Uh, he he returns, obviously, to the club that he played for between 83 and 85, and he coached them to his first premiership in 1988 as a coach. Um, you know, As you said earlier, Tish, the, the Warriors, uh, he had a similar role at the Warriors until mm. very recently. And because of COVID-19 restrictions, uh, obviously he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. So I think it's uh, that probably is one of the main reasons why he wanted to move on from that that club, just in terms of the logistics. Um, obviously, he's closer to home in, in Canterbury, much easier to sort of go there and, and do what he needs to do. Um, let's not forget he also had a similar role in Penrith where he was brought in. It was, well, it was 10 years ago, actually, in 2011. Uh, as a mm. coaching director he, who whose role was to have a whole-of-club approach to turn the Panthers around. And I think it's fair to say, and remember at the time people were mocking him, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, he's got a five-year plan and does it match his five-year plan and all this sort of thing. But look, at the end of the day, when he left in 2019, so eight years after he joined, they had uh, a very strong junior system that was kind of very well organised. They've always had a great junior system in terms of pathways, but I think one of the things that he brought to the table was, uh, you know, getting getting the facility sorted out for the juniors, getting the facility sorted out in terms of training facilities, all sorts of things. It just looked like a much more professionally run club. And really the envy of a lot of other Sydney clubs, I would say, the Panthers. So, And that was reflected on the field where they reached the uh, the grand final last year. And, and now, obviously, Nathan Cleary has gone from strength to strength. So, you know, their star performer has, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say is probably one of the top five or so players, uh, you know, based on, based on um, you know, performances in the state of origin this year and how central he was to New South Wales uh, series win. Uh, I think it's fair to say that that the the success of Nathan Cleary is reflective of the broader success of the Panthers that Phil Gould brought by uh, by the way that he you know his his insights and and his structure and his uh, ambition all those kinds of things look and if we're asking the question can Phil Gould turn around the Bulldogs in my view and I'll throw over to you Tish I think he can. I think something that the, the Bulldogs have lost is that ambition that they used to have. Ironically, they used to have it back when uh, when when good old Toddy Greenberg was there. 
um, and and some of the structures that he put in place as well before he became uh, a part of this uh, the NRL headquarters. Um, so yeah, look, what's your view based on what you've seen of Phil Gould in the past? Um, do you think he's got what it takes to turn the Bulldogs around? And if so, how will he do it? Yeah, well, it is it is very very interesting, you know. Um, Phil Gould returns to the Bulldogs in um, you know after uh, what is it thirty odd years? Um, it's going to be more than thirty years, right? Nineteen eighty eight uh, to to here and. Uh, the thing about the Bulldogs is that they um, look in the nineties, or probably in the nineties and in the early two thousands, probably up until maybe even not that long ago, they were, you know, what you knew every every year when you looked at the ladder, when you looked at the draw, you know, if you were picking your top eight, you would probably have the Bulldogs in there, right? And then um, it's gone horribly wrong <laughs> in the last few years. So, um, you know, now they need to rebuild, and uh, they've been coming last. You know, consistently over the last few years, I think last year the Brisbane came last, but they were well on the way. And the year before that, they came last. So, you know, um, it's been it's been it's been a, a very troubled time, and they've had trouble at the board too. But they're a very rich club as well. Um, so, I think Phil Court is the right man, um, but you know, like uh, this is what okay in nineteen eighty eight, he he was the premiership winning coach. But he didn't coach them for the next season, right? Um, didn't he move to the Panthers straight after? Um, so, like, you know, that bit of history there is a, is a little telling of how the club was. And I think he was replaced by Chris Anderson, whose wife, Lynn Anderson, <laughs> uh, was the chairman, what, about a year ago? I don't know if she's still the chairman now or chairperson, I should say. Um, and uh, Chris Anderson, obviously, was the coach that replaced Phil Gould. Um, and uh, Lynn Anderson is also the daughter of, of I think, is it Peter Moore or Kevin Moore, one of the Moore people who who ran the club. So you know, Phil Gould coming back into the family. I don't know how it's going to go with all the different factions that are in the Bulldogs, um, because he's a very like what you can say about Phil Gould is that there are there are a ton of people who absolutely love him. There are a ton of people who absolutely hate him. It's usually this or that, right? It's, he's a very Part of me, he's a very device, uh, uh, this you know, divisive sort of character. So, I think he can do the job. Just who he is as a as a person type thing. I think he knows the right things to do. I think you know his track record speaks for himself. But I just wonder if he's going to get the support he needs from the club infrastructure and board and everything like that um, for him to actually to 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 do everything that he's going to do. Um, uh, he does have a bit of a. Uh, merry-go-round when it comes to coaches a little bit. Um, so I don't know if Trent Barrett, I don't know how he feels about his position at the moment at Canterbury, but, um, you know, that that is probably also going to be a bit of a bit, bit of an issue. But I've got to say the Bulldogs, um, you know, they've kind of, uh, you know, why they're in this mess is because of, you know, uh, the their inability to handle the salary cap. And, um, and, uh, and look, they've bought a lot of good players for next year. I'm kind of wondering now. It's to the point where uh, you know there's reports that Pangai Junior is going there. There's reports that Paul Vaughan is going there now as well. How can they afford all these players all of a sudden too? Right? I kind of feel like uh, uh, they've kind of have a history of um, not playing by the rules. Um, you know, uh, was it the Oasis Project? Um, 
Oh, uh, yeah, when they were they were going to turn the southwest city of uh, Liverpool, southwestern Sydney of Liverpool mm. into the mm. kind of look, and that was that would have been a good idea, but the idea, the problem with that was that you know it was so ambitious that it actually it was more about moving the club to a place where it was more a viable. But that would have kind of ripped it from its roots, uh, you know, yeah. in Belmore and that area. So that well, was kind well, of a bit of a misstep, I think. Yeah, exactly. And also the fact that, like, you know, uh, money that was supposed to be allocated for building funds to the new stadium was actually put into the hands of players. <laughs> um, uh, well, that's a separate issue, yeah. <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> Yeah, which is which is when they were found out, right? So, yeah, so 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 that's the only thing about um, feel good is that look, I, I think it's a great appointment. I think they're on the right track. I feel like in terms of buying players, their junior development. I mean, uh, you know, I, as a former, you know, I played in the Canterbury competition, and I remember, like, you know, in all the junior years, there was always ten or twelve clubs that you know you'd play against, and you know, it seemed to be a pretty strong competition. Um, but I do remember that as soon as we'd play, like in the off-season, we'd have trial matches against uh, juniors from Parramatta and juniors from um, the Magpies, like the Campbell Town Warriors. I, I remember that they would r- run rings around you, you know. So uh, they do need to, I think, improve their junior development a little bit as well. Um, they probably need to connect to regional areas as well. I think the, the Panthers have done that quite well as well. Quite a lot of their players now come from regional uh, New South Wales. So maybe the Bulldogs need to start building those partnerships. So I think all that background stuff, I think Phil Gould is a master of it, and I think he can make it happen. Um, they're even talking about how he's actually pretty good at sort of um, getting uh, funding and sponsorship from, the from you know, various sources. Like I think James Packer actually invested into the Panthers when he was there. So, um, you know, but I don't think the Bulldogs have that type of financial issues that the Panthers had. So, you know, um, yeah, as long as he can concentrate and do his job and there's nobody trying to stab him in the back uh, because it's the family <laughs> club, you know, uh, then I think he's going to be okay. But, um, yeah, but but I'm, I'm more I'm more concerned about the organisation around him, whether they could support him there for five to ten years because I think the, the current issue that the Bulldogs have, I think it will take multiple years to get back to where they were. Like, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. So that's my, my that's my thoughts there. How about your thoughts there, Dr. T? Yeah, look, I, I agree with what you said. I'll just finish up my thoughts with a bit of a, yeah, I'll wrap up my thoughts with um, just a little bit extra. I think the thing that, the thing that we've seen, at least with the Panthers, and I don't think he's had a chance to do it with any other club, although, um, yeah, you know, and potentially this is the parallel between what we're seeing with the Bulldogs and the Panthers, is that he's taken them on, he's taken this role on, very similar role to what he had with the Panthers, when they're at their lowest or mm. or when they're kind of desperate for change. So as much as I agree with you, the family club, I think, is no longer, I don't think it's run any longer as like a family club uh, because, you know, obviously the uh the 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 elders are, are kind of mostly moved on and there are other and there is also i think an understanding that there's a need to kind of be more professional and and uh and and you know they've brought in a lot of outside outsiders and i think that's probably they're probably thinking well we need to bring someone in who's got the ability to turn us around as a business but also has a love for the club and potentially that's why he's been brought back in i mean i don't think anyone Look, I think, and I'm not saying he's he can circumvent any of the familial kind of issues that they've got there, but 
I think if anything, it's not going to be an issue like it would have been maybe 20 years ago uh, where some of those key families were more entrenched in the club. And, and I, I accept what you're saying, that some of the links are very much there and as you'd expect them to be. But I don't think those people have as much influence as, uh, as you'd like. And in any case, I think people want results and they're not getting results. And so because they're at their lowest, I think they're more likely to just say, look, Phil, you've done an amazing job at the Panthers. Do the same for us. And I think one of the things that he will do, if I'm just going to sort of finish off my thoughts on what he will bring aside from the usual kind of, uh, like you said, there's connections, the ability to draw interest. Um, I'm sort of, you know, you'll see this a lot with certain professional clubs that all they need is a certain key figure, um, you know, usually as a coach or a CEO or even a star player. And they can, and that just attracts other, it's a magnet for other key players to join because it just looks like from the outside that, oh, that club's got its act together. You know, that's a club I want to go to. That's even if they haven't won anything for a while, they're, they're on the up. And I think that's the key thing that he can bring is this a bit of an aura and a halo, halo effect of uh, we all know what he's done. You know, as a coach, he's almost unparalleled uh, in terms of a club coach, state coach as well, almost unparalleled. He's been the most successful New South Wales Blues coach ever. You can't really go wrong, you know, in terms of questioning his coaching ability and his ability to analyse the game. I think he's also you know, almost second to none. I know a lot of people get annoyed with seeing him on TV and as a commentator, but as an analyst, I think uh, his knowledge is right up there. He very rarely, I think, gets it wrong. He gets a bit emotional. <laughs> he gets a bit annoying to people, but not to me. I think he's, I sort of admire what he knows about the game. And I think what the Bulldogs are looking for is someone like him who knows the game, has already runs on the board with the Panthers in terms of turning that club around, getting them into a very good structure and a very good way forward, uh, thinking strategically, you know, doing all that stuff at a high level, but also really understanding what the players need. And that's, I think, the key thing. He's not just going to bring in the, the, the money from the Packers or whatever. He's going to actually do things for the club. So he's going to do things for the team. Like, you know, in this case, he might sort of set up a – a training academy for for halfbacks. He might set up a, a cultural uh, kind of linkages uh, with players and 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 other um, you know local institutions or organisations or or fans. You know, it's things like that that he's likely to bring in because it will impact on on the players. So he's there not to bring in money. He's not a sponsorship officer. He's there to bring in. Uh, you know, to improve the situation for the football, the way the football club is being managed and uh, and, and the way the players and coaches and support staff are, are um, uh, operating. So I think, you know, in my summary, I think, uh, yeah, he, um, you know, he'll probably bring in a little bit of that heart as well as the head, into the business head, business acumen. He'll bring in, uh, that understanding of what it really means to be a bulldog because he played with them and, and coached them. Um, or did he play with them? I'm not sure if he did play with them, but um, yeah, he, he did play with years. them for a bit. Yeah. He played three years with them and he coached them uh, for two years, obviously winning his uh, the premiership in his first year. And, and as I said, I think uh, that's what he's going to bring. I think someone who really understands the bulldogs and can get them back to their core essence 
Uh, and look, as an Eels fan, the Bulldogs being our traditional rivals of the 80s, in my view, uh, as much as I, I love to kick a Bulldog when they're down, um, <laughs> the uh, having a strong Bulldogs club, along with my Eels, of course, I think is absolutely critical for the game in Sydney because it is probably one of the, the strongest rivalries. It goes back 30 years or so at least and 30, 40 years almost. And and uh, not just that, I think it's also a struggle between some very rich, ethnically diverse clubs within Sydney. If anything, you know, the Battle of the West is not necessarily a Penrith thing. It's an Eels versus Bulldogs thing because mm. it, very much it is about this uh, particular rivalry that kind of uh, is, you know, not far west Sydney, but certainly western Sydney uh, that is represented by these two clubs. So Traditional western Sydney. Traditional Western Sydney. And look, and that's not, not taken away from your Tigers, of course, who I've yeah, been a yeah. fan of for many years because I, I think it's just a it's a different type of – and I, look, in many ways you can actually add the Tigers into the mix there as, as uh, you know, those three clubs together really are the heart of Sydney in terms of the, the heart of the way Sydney has evolved. So I mm. think – I think George, uh, sorry, Phil. <laughs> I'm thinking George Piggins. Uh, Phil Gould really does understand um, what the Bulldogs are all about, and I think, I think we need a strong Bulldogs uh, team for um, for the game to thrive in Sydney, and and for um, you know for the for the communities that the Bulldogs represent. Absolutely, we need a strong Bulldogs team. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing what what Phil Gould. I think we'll probably hear from him in the next few days. I'm no doubt there will be a five uh, five year plan that people will ridicule, mm. but at the end of the day, I I look at it as well. Look at the results that the Panthers have; they are probably the best run club in Sydney, and uh, just have their act together where other other clubs really could emulate. So, uh, look, I I'm all positive about this. I think there's not many negatives about this at all, um, and I think Philgood will do wonders for them. So. Look, that's my view. Tish, do you want to add a last word before we move on? Yeah, look, I, th- I think, yeah, just um, look, Phil Gould, as you said, I, I just want to stamp that point in. It is definitely a um, – what he's done to the Panthers is remarkable. The fact that they're number one or number two, you know, they, they made it to the grand final this year. There's no – I mean, basically all their players, their first – they're known for being Panthers players. There's, there's not really a player in there that sort of played for any other club, right? Um. Whereas if you look at the Bulldog strategy um, for next year, it's just basically trying to buy themselves out <laughs> of the problem, yeah. you know. Um, so, so I think this is like much needed. So, so, so definitely there. And um, yeah, and I think, and I think that right. Look, I think it's been a bit, a bit missing from the NRL calendar, the Parramatta Bulldogs rivalry because I think when the Bulldogs were on top for so many years, um, Parramatta weren't really doing that well, and now Parramatta have have seemed to be turned around a corner and then it's sort of, you know, at the same time while the Bulldogs have sort of declined a little bit, it's it's kind of uh, interesting how these two clubs haven't really had that sort of, um, you know, rivalry again. And uh, you're right, there's elements in there. I think I think the thing about the Bulldogs actually is that, um, you know, I remember, I mean, before the merger, uh, you know, one of the games that uh, I remember going to watch Campbelltown said it was, you know, the Magpies versus the Bulldogs and it was, it was on. It was a. It was a really intense battle there as well. So I think the Bulldogs. It's one of these clubs. I feel like um, they've got multiple rivalries happening. 
um, you know, like uh, Bulldogs and St. George, uh, you know, when the Bulldogs were yeah. doing well, that used to be a bit bit of a strong one too, you know, because there's a border there as well. And, um, you know, the Bulldogs and, and the Rabbitohs, I mean, we just saw what happened over the weekend, but also the Good Friday uh, fight. And I think also the Bulldogs versus the Roosters because at one stage they both wanted to call themselves Sydney. Um <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so 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 really, like, I think I think having a strong Bulldogs does, even though we hate them, it's 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 kind of like you kind of love to hate them, sort of thing. You know, it's it, it's kind of like manly a little bit sometimes. You kind of you kind of uh, need that rivalry to happen because you kind of look forward to the game uh, overall. You know. Um, yeah, we have uh, a bit of a dysfunctional uh, relationship with the Bulldogs, don't we? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and just like in Western Sydney, like, you know, obviously where I grew up and we grew up, you know, you would have, you know, you'd ask your friends, oh, you know, which team do you go for? And because there's people moving around all the time, you know, you'll have somebody say, oh, I'll go for Parramatta or I'll go for the Bulldogs. There'll always be a Bulldog supporter, you know, in there. So um, it is kind of that thing again, you know, where, where you've got that going on. So... Uh, but yeah, anyway, enough of the Bulldogs. I think we've uh, we've used our Bulldogs quota for the season now. So uh, yeah, I don't want to uh, talk about them again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on to tackle number four. Here we go. All right, tackle number four is our very brief review of uh, the 2021 Challenge Cup final, which was played between the St. Helens Saints and the Castleford Tigers. And uh, at the end of the day, it was a win for the St. Helens team, 26 to 12 against a very gallant Castleford Tigers side at Wembley Stadium in front of about 40,000 people. Um, and they claimed their first Challenge Cup in 13 years. Uh, look, over the years, uh, obviously, St. Jo- St. Helens has played uh, pretty well. They've been quite dominant in the last few years in England, but the Challenge Cup was a missing part of their trophy cabinet, and, uh, and look, they, they managed to... First of all, they got off to a good lead, uh, 6-0, and then, uh, unfortunately... At halftime, Castleford clawed their way back in and were ahead 12 points to six. Um, and then it was all one-way traffic in the second half. They scored 20 straight points, St. Helens did, to lift the Challenge Cup uh, for their first time since 2008. And they now become the second most successful side in Challenge Cup history behind the Leeds Rhinos. Wow. Um so, yeah, look, well done to St. Helens. Um, I didn't really catch the game. I saw some highlights and uh, it was so nice to see a big crowd there once again at Wembley Stadium. Mm. Um, you know, the Challenge Cup has been one of these things where, as an outsider, um, it seems like it's, uh, you know, even when the actual premiership itself the over there in, in Britain is... Uh, you know, not really going from strength to strength as uh, as the NRL is over here. Um, but you can always rely on the Challenge Cup to bring in a huge crowd <laughs> and and uh, and for it to be a meaningful trophy. Uh, in many ways, the Challenge Cup is kind of more of a... Of a uh, well, over the years, it's had a lot more tradition. It's been a lot more prestigious, I think, than, uh, than the actual league. 
itself, which is kind of a bit weird, but that's what it feels like as an outsider. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's it's great to see that um, this is a tradition that still lives on and that people still will flock to an event like a Challenge Cup final. Um, and, yeah, St. Helens, one of those clubs that has been, you know, often uh, was on the list of uh, clubs for NRL players towards the end of their careers to, or, you know, to head off to um, to earn some money and, and to, you know, it's obviously it's been a pretty prestigious club over many, many years. And as I said, with this trophy win, they have now moved into this, becoming the second most successful club behind the Leeds Rhinos, so um, at least in the Challenge Cup tournament. So, Tish, um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on to the next topic about British Rugby League? Yeah, well, look, well done to uh, St. Helens. Um, yeah, it's good to see the Challenge Cup um, back on, and it's got such a rich history sort of thing. I remember listening to a show uh, that somebody did. Um, we only did like a handful of podcasts, but he actually went through the entire, um, you know, every, every year and every winner and, and and sort of what every year meant sort of thing. And there's, you know, it's it's had its ups and downs, but I think it's 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 a really good tradition, which I kind of wish they had something very similar in, in, in you know, in the NRL or in the Australian Rugby League too, where, you know, it's a knockout competition between all your professional and semi-professional um you know, sort of, sort of teams, um, yeah, and uh, you know, St Helens. I believe they won their first premiership, like, uh, or their first one, like, in the early 1900s, right? So, um, you know, so they've got a long tradition in this sort of thing, where, um, you know, so, so it's good to see that sort of happening. So, yeah, I, I suppose um, I know I did read reports that um, I don't think it was heavily televised, uh, even in the UK. So. I think that a few people were sort of saying, oh, you know, I wish they could have, you know. So I think the British Rugby League probably does need to fix its broadcasting, you know, arrangements at the moment just so that more and more people can actually watch this game. But other than that, um, well done to St. Helens. Yeah, well done. Well, the segue that I'm going to move into the next tackle is relates to your comment around what else can British Rugby League do to overhaul their game and, and improve their game. And thankfully... Uh, an Australian has come to the rescue. <laughs> so let's move on to tackle number five. This is Shane Richardson's plan for British Rugby League. Here we go. All right. So former Hull Chief Executive and uh, I believe Rabbitohs Chief Executive as well, Shane Richardson, has called for an overhaul of the British game with the establishment of an independent commission at the heart of it. So Richardson, who served on the board of Super League during his time at Hull and Gateshead Thunder, the club he helped found in 1999, says that the game in England is so badly fractured and dogged by infighting that it is in danger of going part-time, arguing that major change must come before the next television deal expires in just over two years' time. So Richardson submitted a report to uh, was it to the NRL or maybe yeah. to the media? Oh, was it to the NRL about a month ago about the value of the English game and how it needed to be tied into what we need to do with the international calendar, so that we actually have a viable worldwide rugby league to be able to sell to the world of sport. Uh, his quote is a good one. In my opinion, it's fragmented. It's all over the place. Nothing ever ties together and nobody really takes an interest in the totality of the game, end quote. 
Tish, uh, before we dive into what some of his uh, the the elements of his blueprint are, um, what are your general thoughts about his comments around it being fractured and and you know nothing ties together and there's no one really to take an interest in the totality of the game? This is starting to sound like he's going to be using the uh, Australian Rugby League Commission model, is it not? Yeah, well, well yeah, I, I think that's what uh, the gist of his document does say, but I think. I think going back to fractured British rugby league, I suppose since we're not that exposed to the actual inner workings of how it works, um, you know, we don't really see probably some of the underlying issues, right? But from from our end, you know, that whole thing, how it's fragmented over the place and nothing else ever seems to tie together. Um, you know, I think even with the RL commission, we do feel that at, at, at times. Um, so, so, you know... Um, you know, if there's no centralised body that's got any real authority, even in British Rugby League, and then the British Rugby League and the and the ARL Commission are trying to work together to produce an international schedule, which is sort of mandated by another organisation, you know, it's, yeah, the governance of everything is just super complicated. And, uh, yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, so it's, it's very interesting. So, um, yeah, so just on these comments that, that we've just spoke about, it, uh, you know, in, in that moment, I think it is... Um, I think he's on the mark that I, that it is very much um, there's too much too many fractures and too much infighting within administration in rugby league in general, which is I think what has sort of stunted the growth of rugby league. And, and we're talking this is like a decade decades of problems, right? Like I don't think this is a new thing. I think this has been happening for all, quite a long time. Yeah, and look, um, all right. Well, let's move on to what what's the proposed solutions because. Uh, there's quite a lot to get through, and we'll we'll do our best to sort of summarise it. This is from a I'm reading from a press release that was released on the 9th of July, so a couple of weeks ago, um, and by well, it's it's a press release by Rich Digital, which I guess is his uh, the co his, a, a company that he's co-founded. It's yep. at uh, Shane at RichDigital.com.au <laughs> in case you want to contact him directly. Um, Directly, uh, I'm not going to give his phone number, but it is a, it is a, it's publicly available. So there you go. But look, let's let's go into the key elements of what he's talking about. So obviously, the first step he says is a truly independent. Uh, he calls it independent IC, which is a I guess like saying ATM machine. Uh, I <laughs> IC truly yeah. independent commission. He talks about the fact that in in this press release that you know this is a. It's not a surprise. This is a freely available model that the NRL can has documented and has taken a lot from the AFL in Australia anyway. So this is not a surprise. But the idea being is that a simplified structure is required. So he's, he proposes a structure where you've got a an independent commission that sits on top of the CEO of the British Rugby League or, or the Rugby Football League as it's known. And uh, or is that what it's still known? Or they, no, they haven't changed that. I believe. I think they've kept it that way. Um, so an independent commission sits on top. A CEO then has a report to a first tier uh, competition, and then there's a second tier and an amateur divisions who are done. By, I guess are overseen by different people. Um, the next step there is he talks about a business plan that is built around a competition, which is sustainable to attract media and business interest. Um, and, you know, controversially, I think, he says the next step there would be to get rid of the toxic Super League name 
which is very interesting because we mm. even just earlier this year we talked about the European Super League in the soccer being roundly rejected by fans, and here we are retaining this you know the Super League name. Um, look, I was always uncomfortable with the fact that this, the only remnant of the Super League war in Australia was the the name Super League over there in England, mm. and and I was always uncomfortable with that, and I thought that that in many ways hindered progress in the game. Um, so I, I kind of like this idea of, uh, you know, rejecting uh, the Super League name. Um, look, so far, there's three couple of things that I've mentioned. Uh, I see get rid of the Super League name, get a business plan, which is about sustainable media and business investment. I, I think those are, look, apart from maybe that Super League one, I think it's fair to say, Tish, that these are a bit, they're a bit no-brainers. Is that right? Like, would you agree with that? Um, yeah. Are, are any of those things controversial in your mind? No, there's nothing controversial. Um, can I bring up the first paragraph, though? Uh, are we ready to talk about the first paragraph about why this whole thing even started? Uh, yeah, okay, go ahead. Okay, so so, so the whole reason why Shane Richardson has done this is because um, Andrew Abdo at the NRL, so the NRL CEO, um, wanted a report from Shane Richardson on the viability of purchasing the entire uh, British Rugby League. Yeah, sorry, I forgot that that key point there. <laughs> this is why it, it came about. This is and, why and this yes, whole thing was incredible. But but we have spoken about this before, that this has been an issue, an idea that's been bandied about that the NRL mm. could potentially buy out um, and just literally just own the two major competitions given it's got so much money. And that way it could then coordinate much better between them so that we would have a genuine international uh, game window and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So, that, so probably everything that he actually writes about how it should be structured I think I'm all for, to be honest. Um, I think even like the way he's sort of valuing each company and how it'd be different, uh, how you'd value them differently if there was a centralized body. Um, you know, it all it all makes really good sense. Um, but I think the whole, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the big thing is, um, you know, the NRL purchasing the entire Super League or even partly funding it. Um, you know, th- I think it does need to be a uh, a. I think there needs to be a common interest, which might could really only happen from ownership, right? So, I, I think I think the leagues need to come together and have that sort of, uh, you know, one global sport uh, type approach um, mm. as to the fractured approach. And I think that's, um, you know, Shane Richards wants to start start at the at the head of British Rugby League, which is a good, you know, long, you know, it's a good place to start. But I actually think it actually needs to go. A little bit further, and I think there needs to be that world body of rugby league. Um, you know, maybe with, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, like uh, maybe the uh, the timekeepers or something like that. You know, three three people, <laughs> you know, who sort of, and then and then the rugby league timeline can can come together. You know, maybe something like that. But you know, I think like, what you're saying is we need we need we need a Kevin Feige figure to uh to yeah. oversee the entire marvel universe i mean i mean well, the uh the, we need the a conqueror somebody that could take this multiverse of rugby league uh you know of rugby league competitions and put it together uh-huh. in the in the one uh timeline because uh, because it, it like this there is like uh yeah we're talking about schedule but it's um i, I feel like 
yeah, so so I think getting uh, I think maybe part of the process is we need to fix up both the the ARL and the Super League, um, so they're a bit better, and then that way they could um, they they could work with each other a little bit better. Maybe maybe that's what it is. So I'll let you continue on with the with the rest of the rest of the points in the document. So yeah, no worries. Yeah, and then look, he get he then gets into the the clubs themselves and the structure of the game uh, in in Britain. So yeah, there's. There's a lot to be said, and you're right. I think he doesn't really cover because I don't think he was asked to. I think he's he wasn't asked to sort of solve the problem for the whole of the world. I think he was just <laughs> I think he was just asked to solve the problem for British rugby league and what could be done in that way. And so one of the things he says so this proposed tier structure, three tier structure. So the first tier is you know essentially like the elite the elite competition, which mm. would include 10 clubs. He says a maximum of 10 clubs, eight of them, uh, uh, well, I think he's uh, eight clubs from the UK. I think he's actually got it incorrect in his, um, he's got it correct in the diagram, but incorrect in text. He says eight yep. should come from outside England. No, I think eight from inside the UK and two external, so 10 clubs. Underneath that, there's a second tier, which is maximum 12 clubs. And then underneath that is amateur division. So, um, so yeah, so he's, he's then gone a bit further and said, here are the eight clubs that I think should be in from the UK. And this is where I think it can get a bit, a bit much because uh, he says really there are – so he's got like a little bit – bit of a table there five clubs that are automatically in the eight the magic eight number uk clubs he says in my opinion there are only five clubs that are automatic in the eight from england there's wigan saints warrington leeds and one team from hull so remember there is hull fc and hull um kr hull kr kingston rovers yeah interesting because i think hull kingston rovers is the more i think that's got the more traditional longer kind of history so i wonder but hull fc yeah i I think that's the case so correct me if i'm wrong but anyway so that's what he says then he says the potential of the other three clubs so he says the other three clubs should be beneficial to the growth of the game and the value of the business areas such as newcastle york wales and london stand out but this is for the ic to decide so then he's got um now it's hard to see newcastle's thunder i could see um, it's got a Wales team, York City Knights, London Broncos, and Newcastle Thunder as, uh, and is it Wales Dragons or something? Whatever they are. Um, so he's just, got, I think he's just got that as an idea. So again, he's just proposing that as uh, as a way forward, and he's saying that uh, you know of those four, three should be chosen uh, to represent the UK, and then two extras to be outside of that. Now, look, let's keep in mind. I think he's sort of saying. And I, I think it's fair to say if you start off with a contraction of the number of clubs to something that's more financially manageable, then you can expand later. And I think that's the idea potentially, although he doesn't actually say that. But he does talk about – look, this, and this is where it's different because why does this matter? Well, this won't mean much to people, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to people inside Australia. This won't make, make much sense because – this is what we've been used to. We've got an elite competition and clubs underneath that in the various state leagues and all that kind of thing. But let's not forget that what we're dealing with here is a total shift in culture from a promotion relegation system mm. uh, 
to a system where there is actual teams, almost like franchises, that um, that are not, you know, pretty much not going to move around. So he's trying to find a, a bit of a hybrid model here. So he says in the beginning there has to be a two-year moratorium on promotion and relegation to allow the competition to become embedded. And then one team promotion and relegation will start from the end of year three. So, again, we're talking about the culture in some of the teams in soccer, definitely in the UK and in and throughout Europe, is that uh, you've got teams going up and down between levels. So you can get a really small club from who knows where that makes it to the big leagues and potentially can stay there. And it's a bit of a, a process of a natural attrition in a way, uh, the top teams will stay at the top because they'll get all the money coming their way, a lot of interest, and and et cetera, et cetera. So um, he does say, though, that to be promoted, you still need to meet strict criteria. So you don't just get promoted if you've got, you know, a crappy financial situation or no good stadium or that kind of thing. You still mm. need to have some minimum requirements. I think that's fair enough. Um, and what that does is I think it... it sort of adds a bit of an incentive to the lower level clubs who are not in that top league to fight hard to get there. Uh, and, you know, they obviously if it's a one team only, it means that if you win the lower the lower tier competition, whatever it is, if you win that premiership, then you are the one that's promoted. And that's a huge incentive if you know that you're going to be promoted if you meet all the criteria. Um, and then he talks about the uh, the second tier being a semi-pro competition. Um and obviously the third tier should be an amateur competition. Uh, there's obviously tons of amateur clubs in England anyway who can use as an opportunity to sort of uh, potentially boost uh, and and hopefully there's a pathway as well. So I think the idea is it's a it's a similar he says it's a similar model to the Intrust Super Cups and it's uh, as and it's feeder competitions. Um, up to five of the top 30 of these second-tier clubs play in the competition each week and it's televised. So it's it's not that every single game is televised, but a, a certain proportion of them, the top teams, the top uh, games in each weekend are televised to, uh, in some way, shape or form, usually in, to streaming audiences, etc. So look, let me just pause there for a second. What do you think about his idea for the, the the tiering of the club structure. Well, I think I think tiering is a part of British sporting culture, right? I think every sport has that sort of tiering system. So I don't think you can completely get rid of it, but I but I like the modifications he made because you need. I think the problem is the stability, right? Um, unfortunately, we'd love to think that you know rugby league is all about wins and losses, but it but it really isn't all about wins and losses all the time. Uh, yes, you do have to win a lot of games, but you also have to, uh, you know, you also have to have a viable club, like a, a club that's run well. Um, so I, I think having a criteria of how teams get promoted and then relegated, I think is going to be, yeah, I think it's got to be more than just what happens on the field, but also off the field type type situations as well. So, yeah, and I think in terms of the whole, um, you know, televising uh, sort of scenario. I know at the moment not all Super League games are broadcast uh, on television. So I think I think if you could get a top division that is like ten clubs and five games, uh, then I think it makes it a lot more easier to sort of sell rugby league because you've got to remember this is a sport that is behind football. It's behind rugby union. 
and it's probably behind quite a lot of other sports and other forms of entertainment in in the UK. Um, you know, there's a lot of people even in London, like even in uh, England, who've never heard of rugby league, um, just because they're from the south of England, right? Um, you know, it is a very um, sort of you know in that northern band, and it's not something that a lot of people are exposed to. So I think, I think just um, yeah, sort of consolidating the games and then just to, yeah, just to give them more, um, you know, a, a better you know a better way to get on more television. I think is important. And then yeah, I, I think the second tier will need to also have. Uh, some televised games too. So, so I think I think everything you're saying makes complete sense. He's obviously he obviously has done a lot of research and probably knows a lot more about the situation um, than what a lot of people do. And I think he's really I think he's he's actually done really well. Yeah, and look, the final bit that I want to say is uh, he talks about the international game. So he talks about those structures and he goes, once this is established, we need to tie this into the international game. And I'm just quoting him. This is my understanding of the history that creates many of the blockages today. The International Rugby League, IRL, is a body that should have an important role in the development of the international game. It doesn't. The breakdown started a long time ago when the ARL controlled and dominated the IG, the international game. They were not about growing the game, but more concerned about the ARL and their clubs. Vested interests, blazers, and overseas trips. It left a bitter taste in the RFL's mouth, and justifiably so. Look, I'm going to stop there, that quote, because that is a killer quote. I think that tells you everything. He, As you said, the context that you gave earlier, Andrew Abdo asked him to report back on what what the viability was in terms of what the NRL could do to purchase a game. And he's come back with all these ideas and, and some brutal honesty there about the fact that in the past – the Australian Rugby League, uh, you know, uh, the powers that be in the ARL kind of didn't help the matter in terms of growing international rugby league because they themselves were were focusing on their own self-interest. So, and he's talking about that, I think, pre-independent commission. Mm. So I think he's saying that in the past, this is what it used to be and this is why it has led to an effect over there in the, uh, in the UK where things just don't blend well with, with what we're trying to do over here and, and the, in, at the end of the day, the international game suffers. So he talks about, I'm, I just won't read everything, but um, I'm just going to look very quickly at some of the key points uh, he talks about obviously investment in, in the New Zealand and the Pacific Islands that's fostered the game, mm. and we've seen. And he's right; we've seen that with Tonga, Samoa, you know, growing uh, in terms of their stature in the international game. Um, he talks about creating an international calendar, which includes Tests, Origin, uh, World Cup, Development Internationals, and Nines. It should be a four-year map incorporating to both Northern and Southern Hemisphere. And I'm just gonna. Uh, I'm just going to go through some of the key – here are the key points, and I, and I want to sort of get your – let me go through it, and then we'll mm. I'll get your reflection on it, and then we'll wrap this up. So first he talks about a test series between Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so this, this is, again, a four-year map. Test series between Australia, New Zealand, and England. These test series should be held twice within the four-year cycle, alternating between the Northern and Southern Hemisphere. So basically what he's saying is a tri-series – uh, once here in the, the south and once there in the north. Uh, all international games to be played when the season has finished. So he's not a fan of mid-season uh, internationals, which is interesting. 
Um, Europe can play point three. Europe can play tests in the northern hemisphere when they want during the year, as long as they do not require NRL players. Again, a very interesting point. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know how that's going to work. Number four, play welfare and fatigue must be considered in mapping this out. And he said the management completely ignored this. One of these four years should be a lay year, a lay year for NRL and English players. Does he mean a uh, a rest play? year or something? Yeah. A rest year, maybe. Um, five, Origin is played in season and no test matches to be played by New Zealand and Australia in season. Interesting point. And finally, a quality global nines competition should be like rugby sevens. It doesn't have to call on current players, but can help to develop different players with different skills, thus increasing participation. This comp would be played throughout the year. There are already interested parties involved. However, all are frustrated by the timing of responses to requests and a lack of an international game plan. Yeah. Um, and then he goes on. Uh, he just wraps it up there about in- investment and all that sort of stuff. But look, I have to say, now that I've read these in detail and I'm thinking some of these through, I don't think these are the greatest ideas for the international <laughs> game. And one of the things that, that kind of is the flavours there that – well, one of the issues that is uh, uh, affects a couple of those dot points is this idea of no test matches in the middle of the season. Uh, I personally think that's wrong. That's a wrong-headed approach because I think what you're going to get is at the end of – Every domestic season, there's going to be uh, there's def- there's going to be injuries, there's going to be fatigue, and not just let's not forget not just fatigue in terms of players. There's also fan fatigue. Fans will be over the football at, the, at a certain time uh, of year, and they'll be more interested in other sports to break the monotony. And this is why I think this is wrong because I think if the only thing you've got to break the monotony of a club competition during the year is state of origin or something similar over there in the UK, whatever that is, and nines competition, um, which he didn't actually say when those nines competitions will be played, then I think that's not enough to break the monotony. I think we've seen an example in, say, soccer as an example where you've got a clear break from the domestic seasons in the middle of the year Mm. where you can play uh, international games during a particular window. And if you have that window, I mean, I like to say this in a very plain way. If you open the door, people will find a way to get through it. (laughs) You know, if you, if you have a window of say six weeks where no, no club football will be played, there are going to be competitions and ideas for competitions that come out of everywhere, you know, all of a sudden we've got a space for potentially two competitions, a cup competition, a nines competition, plus a big international tournament every year. You know, why can't we be thinking along those lines instead of, um, you know, I think the way he's structured it still favours the club competition too much. It's basically saying, you know, and this is where I think he's a, it's been a bit contradictory in messaging. Uh, I believe that more – he's saying, I believe that there needs to be more focus on the international game, but no international games must be played until the club seasons are over, domestic seasons are over. And to me, that's, that's, not, really, it's, that's not really saying what you, what you believe, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, that's my – look, that's my main issue there is that the international uh, – 
there needs to be an international window in the middle of the season that breaks things up a little bit more. Um, obviously, it needs to be structured around origin as well, so we need to think that through here. But if this is about the growth of the game internationally, not just about what we do here in Australia with origin, then we need to really think about that because I think we need something to break the monotony of the competition. We've seen what origin does here. Why can't we do something similar internationally and potentially even have origin as part of that six-week window where mm. we've got representative games? Maybe we do a, an origin series followed by an international series. You know, what better to, to gauge what teams should be, uh, you know, who should be in the Australian team than, than to do a genuine origin series, potentially not just using locally based uh, NRL players, but potentially getting some of the best Aussie players from from other competitions. And, and you know, obviously the, the UK being the other one, um, why can't we bring some Aussie play, Aussie-based players home from the UK to play in our origin game here? You know, that to me is a true... Uh, a you know a, a true unlimited way of doing things. So anyway, that's my view. But what do you think about the the his view on the international game? Well, yeah, um, I I feel like this is the part where he is trying to serve too many masters, right? Yeah. Because um, you know, point point two, which is uh, all international games to be played when the season has finished, but then point three. Uh, Europe can play test in the Northern Hemisphere when they want during the year as long as it doesn't require NRL players, right? <laughs> so that's in season, right? But then, well, let's backflip once again. You know, Origin needs to be played. Uh, you know, point five is Origin is to be played um, in season and no test matches played in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if he's trying to just appease his audience, which is Andrew Abdo and the NRL, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. With with a few of these points, but also trying to appease the people that do want to see an increase in international rugby league. Um, I th- I think the the gist of how it works is that um that I think if you and look um uh, there's a lot you could compare this to right, but uh, but I think it comes down to this any anything that you have to do for 25 weeks straight, it's hard to do right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like you know, which is yeah. how long the season goes for. Um, and look at the Super League. So, so the English Premier League goes for like thirty-six uh, consecutive, um, consecutive sort of uh, weeks as well, right? But they break it up with European Champions League, and they break it up with international um, weeks. You know, where everybody's playing internationals and qualifiers and friendlies, and you know, they they break it all up into little little bits so that. You know, you're not focusing about on the competition every every week. You know, so I think I think that's what keeps people interested in the game. It keeps ratings up high. It keeps, um, you know, people. Uh, it, it, it's in the media. It's in the spotlight. I think better and longer if you uh, if you could break up the season, break up a long season, or just have one shorter, uh, you know, intense season. So if you did. The NRL competition lasted for, you know, we've got 16 teams, 15 rounds. You know, that's one, you play each team once a year because, uh, you know, you're you know because you the 16th team, you don't play yourself, so you end up playing 15 other rounds. And we, yeah, we do it. Uh, and then after the, after the 15 rounds, uh, you, let's go into, like, you know, final series and finish it within 20 weeks or something like that, you know. So you've got plenty of time. 
or the other option, which is uh, which is what you're talking about, is having a break in the middle of the season to do Origin, to do internationals, to do all that. I think I think uh, I think both those options are better than the option that we have now, which is um, you know forcing people to change their you know entertainment viewing habits. Right. Um, by this is the only thing that we have to watch week in, week out, right? Um and uh and like, you know, and after I mean that, there's so much buzz and excitement at the start of the season. There's usually quite a lot of buzz towards the end of the season. But there is that middle season syndrome which which Origin sort of covers, but then once you know, it, it's sort of um I think that break needs to happen and uh yeah, uh, and I think to be honest with you, I think the quality of international test matches in season are actually quite better than the ones out of season. Um, I'd also say that I think after the grand final, I think we've seen this even with state of origin. I think people lose interest in rugby league uh, at the, you know, after the grand final has been played because you know, it's a conclusion to a major story sort of thing. So now you've, yeah. you've finished the story. Do you really want, you know, to read a few more short stories on like, you know, a couple of test matches, like one-off games that are sort of meaningless type thing. Do you get what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's about how meaningful it is. And obviously following, you know, we follow the Eels and the Tigers and look, it's meaningful for us to follow that club throughout the whole season. Um, you know, chucking in a tri-series between Australia, England and New Zealand at the end of the year, mm. every every couple of years, I, I personally think he's got his heart in the right place and he's got some good ideas. Mm. But I still think, I still think he's missing the point. And I think people who kind of, I think there is the point that he's getting is that change needs to happen and that there's a good model out there that we can, that they can emulate, which is the, the NRL model. Um, but I don't, but yeah, what I don't know is whether this international approach is the right approach. I think he just doesn't get the fact that the, in terms of fans, they, they want to see a bit of variety and, mm. and they want, you know, I mean, I don't know what happened to the good. We keep talking about this. What's wrong with the knockout competition? As and you know, like we talk about, we just talked about the Challenge Cup. Do we have a knockout competition in Australia? No, we literally mm. only just have the NRL Premiership, and that's it. That's all yeah. a club team can really win, apart from if there's a nines tournament or something. That's not good enough. And to me, this is an opportunity to potentially have other products. That we bring in, so you know, yeah. I would want to see a day in future where we've got, you know, here are the eels going for the the double, the double, the treble, you know, mm. the uh, the treble being the local cup competition knockout comp, the local premiership season regular season, you know, the premiership whatever it is, and then and then maybe the international club competition against. You know the winner of the uh, of the UK Super League or whatever it will be called in future. Mm. To me, that would be like we don't talk about those things anymore. Whereas you look at what's happening in soccer as an example, and I hate to use that as an example, but you kind of can't not because it's so well run internationally. Um, and you've got clubs that you know you've got well, we you know whatever club you want to go for, um, you know, do they win the Premier League? Do they mm. win the FA Cup? Do they win the Champions League? And there's other, you know, you can actually, there's multiple options for you, multiple ways to earn money, multiple ways to win. Yeah. Um, to me, I think that's what we need to do. We need, and, and so I know this 
is delving too much into the local thing, but I think that's where we need to go. And and the only way to do that is to have actual breaks during the season where we deprioritize. Look, honestly, we need to deprioritize our local um, premierships. Basically, that's what we need to do. We need to put the focus on, you know, the instead of focusing on the 25 games that lead up to uh, the, the, the finals and the grand final, which is what people really are interested in, why not cut some of those games out, give yourself breathing space to do other things, and then people will still follow the finals and the grand final. <laughs> you know, in a way, you could actually do the finals next week. We kind of know what the top eight is anyway. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, so anyway, that's my view. Um, uh, yeah. Last uh, last uh, point of view before we move yeah. on. Well, well, I think I think uh, in all of this, I think we've got to look outside of rugby league uh, as well. Like we're talking about these other sports as well, but just the, just how things are set up from an entertainment point of view. Like, you know, if you watch Survivor, right, somebody's going to get eliminated from Survivor in the first week, right? <laughs> so, so there's already a reason to watch because you you, you kind of want to figure out who's going to be the first one out, sort of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. I think I think that's where a knockout competition becomes super exciting because, you know, it would be crushing, you know, to see your team eliminated in the first round. You know what I mean? Like, um, that's why the you know even watching the qualifiers in the World Cup, and you know, like because it's like mini, you know, this is this, uh, you know, you learn this from the NFL too, right? This is why they division they put divisions and everything because, you know, divisional championships is a big thing, right? You know, it's there's four or five of your peers. And, you know, within your group and you want to be the best in that group, right? And it always creates that rivalry, you know. Again, if we take a look at that Parramatta example, right? If, you know, the, um, you know, the best in the West, you know, title, the 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 grand fi- the minor premiership, the grand final, the international club, you know, you've got your quaddy, right? You've got your, uh, you know, you got, you know, you've got more and more meaningful games throughout the whole season um, and more and more reasons for people to be interested, to actually care, um, you know, other than, okay, like, you know, this is this is a game between, you know, the barbecue idiots, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, versus, like, you know, the, you know, the the team of, you know, the team that, like, that's coming last on the ladder, right? This, like, round, I know we're up to round 19 and or round 20, whatever round we're up to, right? I mean, there's really no reason to watch until watching round 25, do you know what I mean? Like all these games are leading up to a, a meaningful round, which is the final round, right? Uh, because after that, we'll know who's in the finals. But like, you know, it's just watching rugby league for entertainment. There's no real meaning behind any of the games, you know, unless you give it meaning, you know, if you make it women a league round, you got to do something to keep it, uh, to, to make it uh, magical. That's why magical magic round worked, you know, because there is, there, it's, it's something outside your normal, uh, your normal experience, you know. I mean, Formula One does it every week. They're in a different, um, you know, different part of the world, you know. Like, um, you know, so, so I, I think the NRL's got to look at that, particularly if, you, if you're going to – it feels like the season gets longer and longer. I think they've got to fix that somehow. I just I just think it's just yeah. – yeah. And I think the same thing in the British Rugby League. Like, um, like yeah, I, I mean, like coming back to the whole – you know, I mean – yeah, a lot of these, uh, you know, minor competitions, you kind of really don't watch it because you don't, you, you don't sort of see the same quality, right? So yeah. Anyway, yeah I, I think, think we should move on. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're. I think that in summary, I think you're right that we need to just create more meaning. 
meaningful competitions. I think that's the main thing. So, uh, yeah, look, I'm sure we'll discuss a lot more. We've talked about it a lot, but yeah, um, check out check it out on the web if you want to look in the details. Shane Richardson's blueprint. There you go. Let's move on to our final tackle, which is the tips. Here we go. After, uh, uh, well, we're up to round eighteen, I believe, and so oh, no, 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 no. Round, round nineteen. Sorry, round nineteen. Sorry, yeah. So after eighteen rounds, sorry, uh, we I'm on eighty nine points, and you're on eighty two. So I got seven out of eight last weekend, and you got five out of eight. Few interesting rounds, uh, interesting games up ahead of us. Uh, again, don't forget all of them in Queensland, pretty much. So. Let's go with the first one. Eels versus Raiders. I think this will be an easy win for the Eels. Oh, look, the Raiders are in form, but I'm going to tip the Eels. All right. Uh, Roosters versus Knights. Similarly, I think the Roosters are going to have it all over the Knights. Okay, I'm going to tip the Knights to bounce back. Wow. I don't think the Roosters are as hot as what they were before, and I think the Knights had a bad loss last week, so they want to fire back up, right? All right. Are you going to tip the Cowboys to upset the Storm? Because I, I am not. <laughs> no, unless there is an actual Storm in North Queensland, I don't think they will lose. So, yeah. So. What about, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. All right, Rabbitohs and Warriors. I'm tipping the Rabbitohs. Yeah, I'm tipping the Rabbitohs here as well. Tigers and Manly. Look, sorry, Tish, but I think Manly uh, on a bit of a roll at the moment, so I think Manly will win this one. Well... You know what? This, I never thought I'd say this, but I'm going to tip the Sea Eagles here. I just think I think Turbo is back. So, uh, so yeah, so I think the Sea Eagles are, are, are going to win this game. Well, you've heard it first. Put your money on the Tigers, everyone. Tish has gone against them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Panthers versus Bull. Uh, sorry, Panthers versus Broncos. Um, look, I think the Panthers are just sort of plodding along at the moment. They're doing what they can to win, and don't forget they've got some major injury worries there. So I think they'll still win this one. Okay, the Petro Siva Cup, and then tip the <laughs> Panthers. The yeah, Petro, Petro's the only winner on the day. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right, Titans versus Dragons, uh, or the Barbecue Idiots, as you call them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what? I'm going to go for the Titans in this one. Yeah, no, I'm going to tip. Well, yeah, I'm going to tip the the Titans too. Uh, whose turn is it to be suspended this week from the Dragons? Right, so we don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a lottery draw, I think. Look, finally, Bulldogs and Sharks. I'm going to tip an upset. I think this news of Phil Gould joining them. I think there'll start to be some, uh, yeah, some some uh, performance enhancements going on, but not of the illegal kind. I think people are just going to start to go, oh, Gus is in town. So I think the mm. Bulldogs will win against the Sharks. Yeah, well, I think uh, Phil Gould will have an impact on the Bulldogs, but I don't think it will start this week. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm going to tip the Sharks. All right, fair enough. And look, thanks for that. That wraps up this podcast. We've had a big one talking about a lot of big issues in the game. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Tish, thank you very much for your insights as usual. Over to you to wrap this up. Well, that's all that we have for this episode of the Rugby League Republic. We're your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. Join us next time on the Rugby League Republic. Bye for now.